Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Renee Ann Kramer, who is the author of Birthing a Movement, Midwives, Law, and the Politics of Reproductive Care. This was published in 2021 by Stanford University Press, and it's a really interesting exploration of our understanding of sort of legal regulation and the role of midwives in our healthcare um, umbrella and why this is actually a question that we need to sort of investigate and pay attention to. But I'm going to let Renee explain a lot of that to us today as we chat. I'd like to welcome Renee Ann Kramer to the New Books podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Renee. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. Hi, Lily. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, boy. A few words about me and how I came to this project. Hmm. So I started research on this project way back in 2003. Um, when I moved to California, started on the tenure line at Cal State University, Long Beach. And 2004, I was pregnant with our son, Wyatt. And I, my first book was based on my dissertation, and it was on the way that tribal identity is constructed via regulatory policy. So seemingly very different, but also a real clue to what I'm interested in, which is how law and regulatory policy governs identity and practice. So one day I was sitting with my friend Carrie and she said, you know, my midwife just closed shop because her doctor dropped her from the insurance. And my eyes just kind of lit up and I kind of got goosebumps and said, tell me more about the fact that you can't find a midwife because the doctor that she thinks she needs to have signed for her for insurance will no longer insure her. Because as I looked at the law in California, she didn't actually need insurance to, to practice. Her doctor didn't need the coverage for her to practice. Now she did need a physician to sign for any kinds of orders for her to practice, but that would have been a different ask. So I was fascinated, right, to find out that there are professionals, midwives, operating in states where their practice is legal, like in California, who still felt like they were doing illegal things and therefore closing their practices because they were afraid of prosecution or afraid of a liability lawsuit. So I started researching at that moment, but I didn't end up actually publishing the book until, like you said, 2021. I did 13 years of field work, wrote a different book in the middle, received a National Science Foundation grant to help me finish um, the work, moved from California to Iowa, where Iowa is a state. When I moved here, I found out that certified professional midwifery is not legal. In fact, it is criminalized. So I looked, I was like, wow, how amazing that in the United States, we can have the same practice of midwifery legal and well-regulated in some states, legal and poorly regulated in others, criminalized in others, and completely, the midwives would call it illegal in others. So I put together a research design that looked at South Dakota, which legalized during the time that I was studying, Missouri, which also did, but which had a court challenge. So it was a different path to legalization and regulation of midwives and Iowa, which still remains an unregulated criminalized state for the practice of midwifery care outside of the hospital by certified professional midwife. So that's so there's a lot going on here. <laughs> going on, yeah, and and really that's that's why I I fell in love with it because my first goal was simply to map what I was thinking of as a, a complex regulatory web, just figure out what exactly was going on nationally in terms of whether or not it was legal to practice as a certified professional midwife, 
whether it was regulated by the state that you lived in, what kinds of regulations there were. Um, At the time that I finally published the book, midwives, certified professional midwives were legal and regulated in 32 states, illegal in eight, and nominally legal, but unregulated in 10. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that makes perfect sense to anybody who's paying attention. I'm going to make it um, worse, Lily, because in every state, certified nurse midwives are legal and authorized and regulated for both hospital and out-of-hospital birth. Okay, so we have two different two di- different sort of certification um, umbrellas, certified nurse midwives and certified professional midwives. And for those of you following it along at home, of course, we're all on board with exactly what it is a midwife is and what she or he does, right? No. (laughs) And I can make it worse before I make it better, but I won't. Midwives, in general, when we say midwives, these are people who are predominantly woman identifying people in the United States. Um, I've only been made aware of two male midwives. I have not interviewed either of them. So we're talking primarily about women identifying people who are attending to labor and delivery of pregnant and delivering people. The word midwife is commonly, um, whenever you talk to a midwife, they'll say, this means with women. To midwife someone is to be with a woman during her process of labor and delivery. A nurse midwife is someone who has had didactic training. They've gone to school, they've achieved their nursing degree, and they've done specialization in obstetrics and gynecology. In all 50 states, they are able to practice in hospitals that hire them. And in all 50 states now, they're able to have home birth practices that are regulated by the state. That that wasn't the case when I started my study, but it is now the case. A certified professional midwife is a midwife who might not have a nursing degree. Now, she might. She might actually be a nurse midwife who wants to practice as a professional midwife instead. But that's that's a scope of practice issue that we don't need to get into. <laughs> but okay. a certified professional midwife is someone who does not practice as a nurse midwife, meaning they will not practice in a hospital. They are only doing out of hospital or home birth, maybe in a birth center, but usually at home. And their training has been um, a portfolio-based training. A PEP is what it's called, Portfolio Education Program, which means that they have attended a particular number of live births, a particular number of types of births. They've done um, apprenticeship training with a certified midwife. They've sat for an exam. So their, their way, their pathway into the profession is not through a college education. And so in, in this regard, um, we can think about uh, certified nurse midwives as people who have pursued a degree in nursing in some capacity and then specialized in midwifery. Is that yes. correct? That's correct. And a certified professional midwife is someone who is not a nurse, who doesn't have any of the nursing training, but specializes in birth. And they'll argue, and and largely I think they're correct, that CPMs see birth very differently than even CNMs in terms of their acceptance of a medical model of labor and delivery. 
So CPMs tend to be much more critical of the medical model. And and so I mean, and this is this is a sort of a, a longer, bigger discussion, right? Of you know how how birth happens, particularly in the United States, in advanced Western countries um, or advanced developed countries, not necessarily Western. Um, that 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 it's a medicalized process um, and one where oftentimes the person giving birth um, ultimately doesn't have all that many choices or options. Is that correct? Yes. So it's interesting. Um, Barbara Katz Rothman, the sociologist who writes on labor and delivery, calls it industrialized birth. Um, And I, I don't think many midwives would disagree with her that the hospital model does treat the process of labor and delivery as an industrialized mechanized affair. So the argument that pro-home birth and pro-midwifery advocates make is that hospital birth tends to result in less ideal outcomes for the average woman or average person who's laboring and delivering going through the process because of the interventions that those births cause. On a, on a woman's body. So they'll say, you know, the average woman giving birth does not need to be hooked up to an IV drip, does not need Pitocin, does not need internal fetal monitoring, is able to drink and eat during a long labor and delivery, should be allowed to labor beyond eight hours or 20 hours after, I shouldn't say, I'm not giving medical advice. So I just made up numbers, should be allowed to labor after um, the amniotic sac ruptures should be able to move around during labor and delivery. Whereas the the hospital model, to a large degree, says, no, we want you on on an IV in case we need to administer Pitocin. We want you to be ready to have an epidural in case the pain becomes unbearable. We want you to not eat or drink because we don't want to... um, have vomiting in in the labor suite. We want you to be flat on your back, even though that's not the best position for labor and delivery because it's the way we do it, right? So all of these interventions, home birth advocates argue, create the need for more interventions. So if you're on Pitocin to, to jumpstart a labor, then your contractions are stronger. If your contractions are stronger, then you need an epidural. Once you have the epidural, you can't feel the contractions. Pretty soon you've now been laboring for 14 hours. The fetus appears to be in distress. You need a C-section. Now, in most laboring and delivering scenarios, this would not happen if we allowed birth to unfold, is the argument that home birth advocates make. Um, So they say that for the average healthy, low-risk person, hospital delivery actually creates more harm than good. That's like the first cut. The second part of this argument, and the one that's really come to the fore in the last five or six years, is a real argument about obstetric violence, the fact that people who enter hospitals often, like you said, don't have a, a choice in how they have their birth experience unfold. And there was a really high profile case, a couple of really high profile cases, but the one I'm thinking of in Alabama, where the jury came back with a substantial settlement for a woman who was harmed by obstetric violence during labor and delivery after being transferred to a hospital from an attempted home birth. The upshot of that case was that the governor within two weeks signed legislation saying that home birth midwifery was legal in Alabama. So there's kind of this moment of, well, obstetric violence happens when we go to the hospital. Let's avoid the hospital. 
The other thing home birth advocates will talk about, and again, they're not wrong, are the disparate outcomes in labor and delivery, maternal mortality, and infant morbidity that attend to women of color in the United States. So white women tend to have better outcomes, not necessarily because they are lower risk pregnancies, but because of structural and institutional racism that impacts the care of women of color in ORs, in OBGYN suites, and impacts the way that they are perceived by care providers and the type of care that they receive. So Kiara Bridges has written amazing work on anthropologies of race in labor and delivery. And her recent work, I don't think it's published yet, but I've heard her present on it. She's finding that class does not mitigate so that even um, wealthy black women have disparately bad outcomes in labor and delivery. So the, 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 the institutional racism of a hospital setting and, and the institutional racism of the history of obstetrics gynecology makes home birth or out of hospital birth an even more attractive option for women who have been marginalized, especially due to race or ethnicity. And so into this sort of bigger conversation and discussion about the medicalization of the birth process and the, um, and, and as you say, the sort of potential for intervention that happens when you enter a hospital space, um, you have these two different groups of midwives um, who are also approaching our understanding of, you know, sort of the birthing process from somewhat different perspectives, but they're both providing a midwife service, is that the correct term? Yeah. Um, to somebody who is laboring or birthing. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that conflict and tension has sort of been going on? Mm. Yes, and. Um, I don't want to overplay it as a tension. I think the tension in the book, I talk about it really as a tension around disciplines and professions. So sometimes nurse midwifery and nurses have found themselves at odds with the home birth movement. And sometimes they're in very solid alignment with each other. And in fact, a number of the nurse midwives I know here in Iowa are very in favor of out of hospital birth for low risk appropriate cases. The where they find convergence, where they agree, is that labor and delivery should be allowed to unfold in a less rigid timeline of a way than a hospital setting might permit. And that women, they would say, are fundamentally capable and able to give birth. So that both groups of midwives, nurse midwives and CPMs, agree that that pregnancy isn't a disease. It's not a medical problem. And so they want us to understand pregnancy, birth, labor, and delivery as natural parts of human existence that doesn't that don't need to be pathologized. Now, choice of where they practice sometimes is about a real tension and divide among the people in the profession, some of whom the CPMs or even, and there are other midwives, midwives who refuse to be, um, what's, um, I've lost the word. There are midwives who refuse to, to avail themselves of any form of licensure. And those are called either direct entry or lay midwives. And their position is the state and the hospital should have no regulatory authority over their practice. CPMs accept regulatory authority. They just reject medical authority and hospital authority. Nurse midwives accept hospital authority, and often they do that because they know that they can provide a high level of care 
in a, a birthing center attached to a hospital or in a hospital itself for women who are eligible for their services. So they're, they're, both groups are expanding access to this kind of care for women who don't want a normal traditional hospital birth. And that normal traditional hospital birth is really only from about 1950 on. <laughs> you know, the, the way that we labor and deliver in the United States is relatively still new. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't. I, I also wouldn't want to say that none of these groups are are honestly arguing that the move to the hospital was a bad idea. We know that public health has been improved by birth moving into the hospital. It's just the extent to which the medical model has overtaken the process of labor and delivery that the groups would argue is problematic. And and so I mean and and again I'm sort of asking you because I'm curious and have gone through this experience a couple of times myself, um, and and you sort of talk about how the the midwife is you know in places is the only potential medical professional or trained individual who can essentially assist in the late in the laboring capacity because of the sort of rural um, scarcity. Um, And this is something that, you know, struck me at the be right at the beginning of your book and you have your, your wonderful story about Gina. Um, And, and I was just like, what's, why, why are we criminalizing somebody who's trying to help in places where they don't have a lot of doctors? I don't get this. Yeah, no. And actually, so I'm from South Dakota and can't believe that I got to do some of my research around my hometown with people who I've known for for decades. But they've always said, you know, rural America is facing a healthcare crisis. Rural America is facing a healthcare crisis. And it really is facing a maternity care crisis. Iowa and South Dakota, South Dakota worse, North Dakota even worse. Um, there are women who live no closer than four hours from a medical center. And imagine 60 below zero in the middle of winter with icy roads and you're four hours from the hospital and you've been in labor for 12. This, these are bad situations. So part of this is opening access because if four women in the surrounding 200 miles all provide services of midwifery, then you have a shot of having a trained and qualified provider. It also is the case that as we see states like Iowa, states like South Dakota, states like Texas, um, closing access to reproductive health care in general, maternal health care is um, declining in those places. So as we see this, you know, the closing of Planned Parenthoods, we're seeing a reduction in prenatal care, which makes pregnancy higher risk, which makes birth higher risk, which means that these women living in healthcare deserts out in the middle of rural America with no access to medical care for their labor and delivery, also in many cases don't have access to midwifery care. Now in South Dakota, it is now legal. So that, and part of the argument that rendered it legal, the legislators were convinced by the the idea that women were going to give birth at home because it was their only option, not just their favorite option. And so it was a good idea to allow trained professional midwives to attend them. But I've, I um, attended South Dakota Safe Childbirth Options meeting in Custer, South Dakota, probably 10 years ago now. And I remember, and I talk about it in the book, meeting with a doctor who I call Esther, who gave classes, conducted clinics on for how husbands could help um, 
relieves shoulder dystocia, which is when the fetuses or the, the infant's shoulder gets hooked into the pelvis of the mother during labor. And you basically have to dislocate the infant's shoulder in order to um, allow the birth to continue without a C-section. And she gave clinics in that emergency technique at during events and was also uh, available on a hotline. Like people could call her in the middle of labor and say, you know, we're unattended. There's no one else here. How do I uh, fix this problem that's going on during the labor and delivery? And she looked at me and, and, and sincerely said, you know, this is crazy because we have 20 women in this room who could all perform this technique or who could have performed techniques to, to move a fetus that was transverse or breech and could have done what needed to be done in order to, to have the labor and delivery proceed more smoothly. But at the time that I spoke with her, even nurse midwifery was criminal in South Dakota. And, and so I, I guess one of my questions is, why was nurse mid- midwifery or certified professional midwifery criminalized? What was the concern originally that we have this sort of patchwork or fragmented legalization, illegalization, criminalization, not really regulated? What, what was at the base of the difficulty in, in not having sort of a blanket understanding of this assistance process? Well, there are a lot of, of arguments about why in the United States we've had such a patchwork. And I think many of them converge on competition. That it was a result of um, professionalization of doctors the growth of the American Medical Association, the growth of the hospital associations, and a real desire on the part of those folks to winnow competition. Now, this was accomplished in ways that were exceptionally misogynist and often racialized. So you would see in newspapers photos of uh, an Italian grandma with a, a line that would say something like, look at this dirty midwife. Don't let this dirty midwife attend your birth. So anti-immigrant, racist, anti-woman. Um, the same thing happened in the Deep South with what the so-called granny midwives. So the criminalization of midwifery as a way to consolidate power over Black women women's bodies by making sure that they had to go to the hospital. They had to see the OBGYN in order to have access to the care they needed. So a lot of this was just state level control over reproducing bodies, women's bodies, and very, very similar to the kinds of state level control over other choices about reproduction that women make about their bodies all the time and a similar timeline. So if you read Kristen Luker's great book, um, you know, her, her very first abortion and the politics of motherhood. She speaks about the criminalization in California of abortion care providers. This is a, you know, maybe 15 years before the criminalization of midwifery in the same states. So really this consolidation of professional power over women's bodies by a predominantly male profession that wanted to get rid of competition. And and so that was one of my big questions as I was reading through your book. And one, obviously, that the, even the title sort of pays attention to is that reproductive care is an umbrella category of health care that is unique to half the population. And yet it seems to be constantly under attack in so many different ways. 
And midwifery seems just like it's yet another component of that um, sort of fragmented, um, you know, kind of roller coaster of regulation of different kinds around how women deal with the process of reproduction. Yeah. So I take, um, so I, I often teach a course called Reproductive Law and Politics. And we start with slavery and we end with childbirth. And the two of the texts that frame us are Dorothy Roberts' work, of course, um, on reproductive justice, but also Ricky Solinger's book on pregnancy and power. And Ricky Solinger makes the argument, and I fully endorse it, that reproductive politics is a means of social control that the the re, for purposes of state building so that the reason nation states care about women's reproduction has to do with how we construct citizenship how we need women to produce certain kinds of actors in the world i think we can look at the history of midwifery in different states and in different nations and see the different imperatives of state building at play in the criminalization, in the decriminalization, and in the regulation of midwifery. So for instance, most recently, um, in my work, I look at Missouri. Missouri legalizes midwives, certified professional midwives, but refuses to regulate them because the overarching political need in Missouri for the last 15 years has been an assault, a neoliberal assault on the regulatory state. So there's actually law in Missouri that you can't add words to law. If you're going to write a law, you have to strip some language from some other law so that we don't add text. <laughs> this, is, you know, this is just emblematic of this kind of governance is bad. So we want to legalize midwives, but we don't want to govern them. We don't want to regulate them. That's a very particular approach um, to seeing citizenship. That's a neoliberal citizenship right there. In South Dakota, it's a little bit different. In Iowa, it's different. Every state has a different relationship to how they want to regulate reproductive capacity. But Missouri was able to say, hey, we can have midwives, but we will not govern them. And so does anybody, does any organization then step into the void? Um. So yes, the Midwives Alliance of North America is the, and NARM, the national, the North American Registry of Midwives, they're kind of twin organizations. They certify, certified professional midwives. They act like the ABA or the AMA. Um, And in states where midwifery, where CPMs are legal and regulated, having the CPM, the state usually has a governing board, but you also as a midwife have to stand for the test and license yourself through that organization. So you're licensing yourself through both the state and the organization. In so, Missouri, they say just go through the organization. We're not gonna we're not gonna promulgate regulations on your practice. I, I assume that they don't take the same approach to doctors, do they? Well, you know, they don't even take the same approach to other reproductive health care clinics. Just midwives. Just midwives. And here's the interesting thing. Missouri is one of the states that kind of pioneered the uh, so-called trap laws, which were closing Planned Parenthoods. So laws like you need to have two arms lengths of hallway space in order to get two gurneys through if you're an ambulatory surgery center, or you need to be a certain distance from a hospital if you're providing abortion care. Those same rules apply to birth centers in that state. 
if they want them to. So, yes. so it's legal to have a birth center and you're not technically governed by those rules, but if they ever wanted to close a birth center, all they would have to do is, is measure how many arms lengths you have in your hallways. Um, so this is, this is a fun part of federalism, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I understand, I mean, one of the things that you say throughout the book and particularly in sort of setting up the trajectory of the research is that you're really interested in sort of the socio-legal context for understanding this, like, and, and that's what we've been talking about. Like, where does, you know, misogyny come into all of this? Where does racism come into all of this? Where does, you know, controlling women in terms of how they reproduce the citizens of the United States, and we sort of seem to end up oftentimes with small R Republican motherhood um, leading the charge, of course. Uh, and so can you talk about what you mean by socio-legal context for understanding sort of midwifery and the regulatory state? Oh, wow. I love that question. That question gets me way back to to my roots. So I'm trained as a political scientist, a PhD from NYU in 2001. And political scientists listening will understand when I say I tend to be more of the Western Political Science Association than any of the other regions or the national. I tend to do work that traditional political scientists in the past have said is not political science, right? So so I go to law and society association meetings all the time where I feel like my work is uh, legible and where I feel like I can get really good engagement with some of what I'm trying to do. That doesn't mean that the work isn't political science, but it does mean that I want to take what I'm going to just call a broader and thicker approach to understanding what's going on. My methodologies are interpretive. I'm not making causal claims. I am not doing statistical analysis. I am talking with people, participating in their movements, deeply listening and learning, going through archives, doing interviews, going to events, and seeing not what all this means for the prospects of legislative reform, but rather understanding what all of this means for the particular moment in time or the particular issue I'm looking at to help us better understand how reproduction is figured in these places, how the relationship of midwifery care to abortion care matters, how the race um, of the mother becomes something that impacts not just public health, but her perceptions of governance and the processes by which her body is governed and treated. So I'm asking questions of my data that that aren't, that are, that are much more, I, I ask it like, well, tell me what this means <laughs> rather than, okay, so what do we do with this now? I mean, I do have, um, you know, I have a stance on, on what we should do with the fact that midwives are so variously legal in the States. And my public health stance is that, well, we should regulate certified professional midwives and make them legal. 
as a as a theorist, as a feminist, as a socio legal scholar, I don't, I disagree with myself. I think we shouldn't get the state involved. We should, you know. I I always tell my students, and I shouldn't say this, but I will, that I'm just a big government anarchist. That if that if we're gonna have a state, it should be one that actually helps us. But gosh, if we could avoid the state. Maybe that would be great. I, you know, and I'm not going to stand by that. And I say that with, a, and you can't see me, but I say that with just a wink and a smile. But sometimes, as a as a theorist and as a thinker, I really disagree with what I know is the right public health or right legal strategy forward. So I was a lobbyist for our certified professional midwives group, and I am absolutely in favor of Iowa regulating and 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 licensing midwives. But as someone who just likes to think about the state and the way that the state has interfered with reproduction, I, I would rather the state stayed out of it. And, and there's and, that tension. And I, and I understand that. And in reading about midwives in, throughout the book, one of the things that I kept thinking, particularly in this question of the criminalization of midwifery, is that it seemed to me it was like hearkening back to the witch trials. Um, that you know, here are here are these women who are going to do certain things that are going to produce a kind of magical result, um, <laughs> and so inevitably they must be criminals or witches, absolutely, um, <laughs> because that's how you know so many things that women do that are mysterious is characterized um and i and i felt like i understand what you're saying about big government anarchy um but i also think well if all the midwives are sort of regulated and legal then they'll be less witch-like Right, exactly. And I know, I know that you've read the book. So I know, you know, there's a story in there where the lobbyists that we ended up hiring in Iowa met with a group of us and said, so when you go to the Capitol, please don't look like hippies or witches. Like, just don't. In Missouri, um, it was just a common thread of hysteria that if midwives were legal, we would be legalizing witchcraft. That this, this sense that, ooh, this mystery of childbirth Mm, this power, right? And it is that it, there's a real power in the fact that people can give birth, but a sense that it is dangerous and needs to be controlled. And it does harken back to witchcraft. One of the seminal books on midwifery and the history of it is ties it directly back to um, prohibitions on witchcraft in in Europe and in Britain. And so, where <clears throat> where the sort of practice of midwifery has has not been sort of criminalized or um, or sort of in this nebulous space as it is in Missouri. Um, it, is there something different culturally that allows for more acceptance of not only nurse midwives, but the certified practicing midwives? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I argue in the book that in order for us to actually increase access to midwifery care, we need much more than legislation. We actually will need shifts in birth culture. So I do think um, that we can see that places with longer history of legal status for midwives, like Oregon, places with better integration of care, like some spaces in Florida, Wisconsin, Minnesota, those places have slightly higher rates of out-of-hospital birth, 
and better outcomes. We're in the United States, we'll never see, never, I don't think, see more than a two to three percent population of people giving birth at home in planned home births. Um, right now, we're still lower than one percent nationwide. In some states, it's two and three percent. So we're talking about a very small group of folks. But in countries where um, medicine is nationalized, where healthcare is nationalized, where midwifery is the standard of care, we see you know seventy to eighty percent of birds being outside of the hospital or non-medical, and we see incredibly good outcomes. So it, and that is a completely different culture. And those are also places where maternity and parental leave exist, where prenatal care is a different kind of thing to access than it often is in the United States. So a, a different culture of how we treat mothering, how we treat children, how we treat the family. And, and so in, in that regard, um, when we are thinking about sort of not having this patchwork, I guess one of my questions is, I mean, we've talked about the, the North American organizations around midwives and so forth, um, but how much of a problem is federalism in this particular legal space? So there was a lot of excitement around the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act prior to its passage. There was some hope among national advocates for midwifery that midwives could be a part of that conversation. It did not ultimately end up being the case, but the PPACA did expand things like access to postpartum care, screening for postpartum depression, protection for women who are breastfeeding and lactating, prenatal care, things like that. So maternity care advocates were really involved in those conversations, along with um, reproductive rights advocates and abortion advocates, right? So there was good combined work. Midwives wanted um, federal legislation. And I, when I say midwives wanted, gosh, please know that I'm saying the, the major actors in midwifery politics at the national level wanted legislation that would federalize um, certified professional midwives that wouldn't make it up to states. And I think there's been some hope revitalized again that that is a possibility under the Biden administration, but it also does not appear to be one of his administration's priorities and probably isn't a priority for the advocates at this time. So they're looking to have their services reimbursed by states and by insurance companies so that they expand access in that way and not so much willing to brook the fight of a federal law that legalizes CPMs in every jurisdiction. We seem to have accepted as a country that that reproductive freedom and autonomy is a state-by-state thing. Which is fascinating. Fascinating. It, it, it is. You know, federalism is funky. Um. It is. And, you know, so often I'm asked, like, if I do local press and they say, well, what happens if Roe is overturned? I say, well, you know, that depends on what state you live in. Right. You're in California, you're okay if what you favor is access to that form of reproductive care. If you're in Iowa, you will not have access to abortion. Like, and we have decided that that is the way we're going to do reproductive policymaking in the United States. 
And, and so this is, this is very much in that context that we have, you know, and, and this was reproductive care before Roe too, where, you know, there was access to abortion in some States and not in others. Yep. Um, And so it, it does seem that as you, you note throughout the book that reproductive care broadly construed is, is going to perpetually sort of be this kind of fragmented space in the medical and healthcare sort of world. Is that, yeah. Yeah. I think that is accurate. And so where do the insurance companies land in all of this? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Hmm. So there are a couple of different reasons why insurance comes into play when talking about midwifery care. One is this, um, made up notion or, or mythical notion of vicarious liability. So in states where midwives aren't legal, one of the arguments against them is doctors and hospitals saying, look, we'll be vicariously liable if a midwife transfers care to us during an emergency and there's a fetal demise or a maternal mortality. So they mobilize a claim that they can't be insured for this vicarious liability, which will put them at risk for significant harm if a midwife messes up. Now, I say this is mythical because doctrinally it doesn't exist. So if you read the law review articles that are out there about um, midwifery care, they're all like, yeah, no, there's no jurisdiction where this is actually a problem, but it's really great to mobilize politically. The other, um, there are a couple other ways that insurance comes into play. Another one of them is on liability. If you're a midwife, some states will require you to carry malpractice insurance. This is incredibly expensive. So we haven't even, I I forgot to mention the cost of -of out-of-hospital birth compared to the cost of hospital birth. Um, The average home birth in the United States, which includes all prenatal and some postpartum care, is around $2,500. So midwives who are doing 100 births a year, that would be a huge volume. Most midwives are doing maybe four or five births a month. So you're seeing, of course, if you're doing the math in your head, that's not a huge income. And to get even the most basic of malpractice coverage costs at least as much as a couple of months worth of income for the birth or for coverage. And the bare minimum coverage is not going to cover you in the worst case scenario. So midwives are saying, what's the point? Why should I buy insurance that won't actually cover a claim? And and in the sociolegal literature, we know this to be true. People in close relationship to each other, even in commercial close relationships, tend not to sue. So clients very rarely sue midwives. Usually it's the state prosecuting a midwife against the client's consent or against the client's wishes. So these kinds of suits are very, very rare. Midwives rationally can, can choose to avoid being covered because they have such a limited risk of liability. Insurance comes in on the other end in a much more powerful way, which is that midwives would like insurance companies to cover their services so that they can be reimbursed for clients' out-of-pocket expenses. Um, Some insurance companies do. Some state healthcare plans do. 
Many don't. So I, I note in the book that I had a $9 Kaiser Permanente hospital birth in North Long Beach, California, because I had a great union job at Cal State Long Beach. My insurance premium was $9 a month. And I couldn't afford the out-of-pocket three grand that a home birth would have cost. So I had a $9 hospital birth. It was horrible, but very, very affordable. Now, if I could have used my insurance to cover a home birth midwife, that would have been the option I would have chosen, right? So midwives argue and, and their clients argue that access will be greatly expanded if insurance companies cover their services. And again, that would also sort of indicate or possibly um, telescope or not telescope or indicate a kind of change in the culture that, you know, this is not witchcraft. This is a sort of normal process for giving birth. It would legitimate Um, it in a way, which is one of the reasons um, many people are so opposed to it. (laughs) Because it will take away from the doctors. Right. Well, and you know what's funny, too, about this witchcraft claim is that a vast majority, and probably because of where I did my research, but the vast majority of midwives and the clients that I interviewed or worked with are Amish, Mennonite, Hutterite, quiverful evangelical, or Catholic, like deeply religious women who who have... Um, objections to the state and objections to the hospital that have nothing to do with witchcraft and everything to do with with their Christian faith. So they would always kind of laugh and be like, oh, yeah, you know, they think we're witches, but <laughs> we're not actually. We're a, a good majority of the midwives I worked with were, were pro-life and deeply religious. I mean, and that that comes through in the interviews that you, you know, you sort of highlight in the book also um, with the religiosity, not only of the midwives, but the patients that they're treating. Um, And so since you said you wrote another book in the process of doing the research and writing this book. So my question now is, what are you working on now that this book is finished? So I became deputy provost for academic affairs on July 1st. Congratulations and my (laughs) condolences. I love it, but I'm working on learning that. Um, I am writing. So I'm also at that stage in my career where I get lovely invitations to do kind of discrete projects. So I'm working on a review essay right now of Michael McCann and George Lovell's amazing book on Filipino labor movements in the United States and actually in the Pacific Northwest. So they they take a view of racial capital and bring it to socio-legal studies. And I'm kind of reworking how they interweave racial capital and just doing a nice review piece for law and social inquiry. And I'm working on, what else am I working on? A couple, just a couple of, you know, kind of cleanup pieces, like just kind of thinking back through, I don't have a research agenda right now, scholarly. I'm of course writing novels because don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? And the book that I most want to publish next is actually, it's titled in my head, Balance is Impossible, Integrity is Not. And it's against the idea of work-life balance and really pitched towards academics um, about this. I, I think we are messed up when we try to achieve work-life balance because our semesters aren't balanced. The way we approach our work isn't balanced. So how can we learn to have integrity? instead in what we do? How do we follow our passions, um, but all of them in kind of a whole life sort of way? So as deputy provost, I get to do faculty development. And I'm doing a lot of different like pop-up series on, into, on integrity rather than balance. So I hope that that's the next book I work on. 
Well, I look forward to reading it because I could also use some guidance. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm happy to interview you about it for the New Books Network if it comes out. Awesome. Um, so I wanted to thank you, Renee, for joining me today to talk about Birthing a Movement, Midwives Law and the Politics of Reproductive Care, published by Stanford University Press in 2021. I assume this is available at Stanford University Press's website. Is is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to? Ooh. Or not. You know, all of the ones where I have seen it just flew from my brain. Okay. Um, but if you have a local independent bookstore, like we have Beaverdale Books here in Des Moines, Iowa, you can ask them to order it and they will. You can also okay. find it at Barnes and Noble. Thank you. You're welcome. Um. <laughs> Uh, Thank you for joining me today, Renee and Kramer. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Have a good day.